Red Rocks Austin, how we doing? Hey, come on, make some noise. If you love Jesus. Hey, take a seat. Happy 4th of July. Welcome to Red Rocks. We are imperfect people pursuing a perfect God. This is a weekend where we eat a lot of hot dogs. I'm not sure where that started, but I'm not complaining. And maybe crack open um, a nice, cold, frothy Sprite and... uh, celebrate the birth of our nation, not a perfect nation by any means, but a nation that we believe is committed to growth. And I've heard it said it's not about perfection, it's about progression and how lucky all of us are to get to be born into such an amazing country. And I'm just gonna proclaim that the best is yet to come as we continue to self-assess and look inward and and grow and, and move forward. The best is yet to come. So happy fourth. Some people asked us, are we gonna have church on the 4th of July? And we were like, <laughs> what? There are, so there are like this many more people here than I thought there would be because of that question all week. But hey, one of the things that is beautiful about this country is that we can freely do this, yeah. is worship. And there's Amen. a lot of people and nations in this world that cannot do what we're doing this morning. So we're grateful, and it seems like the perfect thing to do is to come together and worship as a family. So thank you guys for being here this morning. You get extra credit. All the real Christians in the house today. Here we go. That's right. Okay, so today um, I have to make an announcement that last week my little brother Ryan preached what he called the final talk in a collection of talks called We Are Blank. And uh, Ryan lied to you. That wasn't the last week. Today is actually going to be the last week. Not to throw him under the bus. Yeah. He's not here, guys. He's thinking about what he did. Absolutely, absolutely. And we realized we have one more thing to talk about. Please introduce it. Well, it's on some of your hoodies. It's in the book, actually, that Ryan wrote. True. We are makers of the future, which is a really important thing that we say a lot as a church. And we've talked these last couple weeks, all these identity pieces that uh, I think pool really well into this final week of saying, okay, here's a lot of who we are. Now there's a future ahead of us that we get to go make together. I think you might have coined that, at least here, I don't know, but talk about what that means for us. The makers of the future, I actually love that because I believe it's an invitation. I believe it, it speaks to a calling that all of us have with royal blood in your veins that you are made in the image of a maker. And we get this from the very first verse in the Bible on page one, Genesis 1, 1. Pay attention to the fifth word I'm gonna say. In the beginning, God created. So the very first thing we learn about God, other than the fact that he was there in the beginning and before the beginning and made the beginning, is that God is a creator. We have a creative God who creatively made you creatively in his image as a creative creator to go and create. This is in your blood. Write that down. Write that down. Say that. It starts to feel like you're going crazy. Uh Uh-huh. It's in your blood that you are, and this is a bold statement, but I'll say it, you're a creative genius, and you really are. A lot of us just don't believe that because we can't paint or sculpt, okay, or make or graphic design or, or put videos together. My brother, Ryan, not to throw him under the bus again, but I will, um, grew up thinking I'm not creative because he has the worst penmanship of any adult I've ever met in my entire life. If you've ever gotten a, a thank you card from Ryan, it looks like my son wrote it. Or if you've ever gotten a, a piece of Red Rock stationery with scribbles on it and thought it was trash, it was actually a thank you note from Ryan, <laughs> yeah. and he, he meant it. So Ryan, th- Ryan, thank you. Yeah. Ryan can't draw a square and a triangle to make a, a house. So he just grew up thinking, well, I'm not creative. But if you know my brother, you know, put a a blank Word doc in front of him and send him to a coffee shop for a week, he'll write you a novel. And that's not a joke. Echoes of Eden, the book that we are saying, uh, name your price for in the lobby, Ryan just wrote that, okay? So he, he's creative and so are you. If you, can, if you can arrange surround sound in your living room so that the, the sound converges on the sweet spot of your couch just right, if you are a parent who can arrange a nap schedule or potty train, if you're a third grade teacher who can take complicated stuff and make it simple, if you're a, a, a boss who can lead a meeting over Zoom in a way where your people don't fall asleep, right? If you can decorate a house, you are creative brilliant. This is how you were made, and we need to, 
We need to realize that so that we step into that, that you are made to go and make, church. We are the makers of the future. We ask all the time, what is God about to do next? I think an equally good, if not better question is the one he's asking. I wonder what my co-creators are going to make next. You guys, we are charged with this. And that's what separates humanity from the rest of creation. Our dogs, Luna and Bowser, aren't thinking about tomorrow. They're amazing, they have the breath of God in them, they're loved by God, but only the human being can see a world that hasn't yet been realized. You can see a life that you haven't lived yet, and then you can go and make it. This is creativity, and by the way, it is the opposite heart of criticism. Both creativity and criticism see what is, great. Only creativity sees what could be and then goes and makes it happen. And this is the calling, the journey that we're invited into, the project, if you will. If you go on in Genesis chapter one, starting in 27, you're gonna see, so God created mankind in his own image. You are made with the imago Dei within you. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, amen. Increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then he says, and rule over it. Now, the Hebrew word for that is the word radah. It's actually the language of royalty, that we are royalty, royal blood in your veins, the image of God imprinted onto your soul to go and create. We are the makers of the future. The Bible starts in Genesis in a garden. It finishes in Revelation in a city, which implies the garden was never a finished product but rather the beginning of a project teeming with raw materials and for us to, to rearrange, to take this whole thing somewhere. He put us here to do something with the world. And for Christians, I think a lot of time for us, it feels like that's true on like the macro level for like the varsity Christians, mm -hmm. but there's no way God wants to actively <laughs> partner with me because right. of my stuff because of my story, and I think a lot of us, I think people look a lot of times at the church and maybe make you feel this way, like the church is lazy and apathetic. There's a future to make, but nobody wants to do anything. But I actually think that that's not really the motivation behind most believers. It's actually this like disqualification of self that we do, and so maybe you've gone to a church or go to church and hear, you know, don't be a consumer, contribute, do something, and you're like, all right, let's go serve in the kids' ministry, but we hate kids, but we'll do that for three weeks, and then you're like, well, that wasn't it. And instead, what we see from God is not this obligation, but this invitation to say, partner with me and make the world look like I wanna make it look. You through your gifts, your life. But it has to, it has to click. It clicked for us in college because we were very much like the back row guys who thought, God's not gonna use us. There's no way. Like Those people that are polished up there, sure, but not us. And it was a poignant night where our pastor Bill was preaching out of Acts chapter one. I wanna read this to you. This also gives me hope. Doug talked about my dog, but I believe he could be a co-creator because he has a hunger for the word. I thought you just wore it down because you've read it so many times, but. Yeah, I can't, yeah, I read no. this so much. So weathered from. <laughs> Why did I think that? Bible in a year, every week <laughs> <Yeah>. for me. <laughs> my dog, he's like chewed up, I think eight Bibles. So let him be an example to all of us. But um, so in this, in Acts chapter one, Jesus died on the cross. He's risen from the grave, he's commissioning and sending, he's handing off the ministry to his disciples. And this is the story of the ascension. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I remember that night, it, Bill was illustrating to us what, what this angel is saying to the disciples is, hey, um, yeah, he went back up there, but you remember that he just showed you how to live and told you what to do? Don't spend your life staring up into the clouds waiting for him to do something. He just handed you the church. Now set your eyes forward because there's people in your path that need to hear the news that he just died to share with everybody. And I remember that night for us, we were like, maybe even us. 
I think the Greek word for unschooled ordinary men that it describes the disciples is idios, which means idiots. Correct. And we were like, that's us. Come on. God is calling us to go to other countries and we literally booked plane tickets and went to other countries because we finally, it clicked for us that hey, even us, he could even use us and maybe our brokenness, maybe that's the whole point of him using our testimonies and our story is that somebody else could hear the gospel through our brokenness and through, hey, if he could use me, he can use you and so we were humbled in a lot of ways in this time period where this was clicking to realize we got on a plane thinking, we're gonna go change the world and fix all these problems in a year. And then we, you know, we didn't, spoiler alert, uh, still a couple problems out there that we didn't get to deal with, but we were humbled. But at the same time, I think it, it showed us that, hey, you can be in this. Jesus is gonna use your lives. And we maintain this optimism and this belief that, you know what? We are makers of the future. And this world doesn't have to look the way it does right now. And that's all because of Jesus and, and this story. And so, hey, stop staring into the clouds and waiting for God to do something. Stop sitting in the back row and expecting the other Christians or the polished people to do it. No, you, right here in this moment, God is saying, set your eyes forward because there's a bunch of people who need the news that he just gave you. That's so good. And he said, go to the ends of the earth. And we are the most literal literalists ever. So we just bought tickets to everywhere that we thought was an end of the earth and went there. And it was amazing. We flew back um, very humbled because realized the world already has a savior and it's not any of us. It's Jesus Christ. Yet, this king of the universe has invited all of us into the story to play a role as co-creators, as makers of the future. This is a sort of really big deal. And in order to do that, I wanna, I wanna mention something called the Stockdale Paradox, okay? So this was coined by a man by the name of James Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war for eight years, went through hell on earth for eight years. And when he finally made it to the other side, he was asked, how did you get through that? And his answer was twofold. Number one, I was brutally honest about my reality. And I didn't, I wasn't an ostrich with its head in the sand pretending there's no lion, there's no, no, I, I faced the facts. And at the very same time, I never lost my optimism about the future that in the end, I'm making it through this. You call it faith, whatever you want, but there will be another side to, in fact, faith won't fix what you refuse to face. Faith kind of gives you the ability to face the, the reality, like the, the, and be honest about the present realities. And, and so I think as makers of the future, um, we need to sort of master the art of the Stockdale paradox of let's, let's acknowledge our reality right now that we, according to all the articles and the statistics, we live in a, a post-Christian world right now. And there are 172 nations in our, in our world where the gospel is, is growing and the church is going and, and uh, there's 20 where it's declining and the United States is one of those. And it's declining quickly. And people, young people especially, walking away from their faith and we need to be honest, take an honest assessment about what's in front of us while at the very same time, you guys, we can never stop believing that the best is yet to come and that, that if, if the tide goes out, out, the tide is coming back in stronger than how it went out, which should cause us to hit the ground on our knees and just pray. Because honestly, before we talk about anything else, I should just throw it out there that prayer is going to be the power behind the future and the church that we make. So to all of you prayer warriors, like my mom watching this right now, like all the Liz Weckenmans of the world, you have no idea the power and the future that you're creating right now for your children and your children's children. If you think about it, um, it's not even cooler events or better methods or um, even more theology that's going to turn around whatever decline we're currently seeing. It is Man, prayer is the power. God comes where he's wanted, where he's invited. You think even 50 years ago, people would have a library book on hold for months just to get one paragraph of theology. Nowadays, we have an infinite amount of it, and we've never seen it this low. Prayer is the power. So may we always be a church that prays, not as a last resort, but as the very first thing that we do. And I can see people in this room that walked these seats when they were empty for months and months and months and literally prayed that you would be here someday. 
that prayed for a return to church together, the ability to do what we're doing right now, and so many other things that have happened already in this church. I think the fruit we see on weekends right now is answered prayers from the last couple of years, and so let that urge us forward. And when you, if you're in this room, I mean, we have a prayer team praying all through the week that lines the back of this room, just to get really practical right now, um, during worship at, in services, to partner with you, to pray for your future, to pray for your life. And I wanna be a church that says, hey, I wanna run back there and pray with somebody on that team and just pray for the future. Pray for her, pray for this generation, pray for these kids that are coming, pray for the future of us as the church and how Red Rocks Austin can be used to bring people to Jesus in this really strange and difficult time that I think a lot of people think, man, it must be awful to be the church, be a pastor in this time. Yeah, so we wanna talk about our cultural moment right now because when you understand it more, I believe we'll get more excited about it, excited about the field that God has given us right now that, as according to him, is ripe for harvest. This was a prayer request of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 where he said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Look around right now. It's a church of, of workers. The workers are few, so ask the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, send out workers into his harvest field. Because I think we can be tempted to look at the condition of the world or the state of the church in our nation and get really, really pessimistic right now. But I promise you, Jesus has the same vantage point. That's not how he feels about this generation and his field. I think of it like if you were to go to the tallest building in Austin, the, the Jenga condo building or the building that looks like a giant USB thumb drive, and you were to stand on top of that and look down and you could just see all the problems. But Jesus would get in an elevator, take it to the bottom, to the streets, and not see problems, but people worth sacrificing for. So right now, do you see problems or do you see potential? Do you see problems or do you see people worth sacrificing for? We want you to fall in love with being a Christian and being a leader in 2021 in Austin, Texas. Because do you, like, maybe you've ever had that conversation starter question where it's, what, what era were you supposed to be born into? And we used to make fun of that all the time when I'd hear people say, oh, man, just the, the 1940s, that's my era. Or you watch like Downton Abbey and you go, I, I should have been alive in that time. That's just, that's like, oh, when the average lifespan was 48 years, yeah, that's when you should have yeah, been born. Didn't have medicine. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I would have killed it as a farmer back in the 1600s. Absolutely, for sure you would have. Yeah, without yeah. electricity, having to walk to... <laughs> Some, a tree outside in the middle of winter in the night just to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I would have crushed it. That's uh, us millennials were like, oh, oh yeah, I would have yeah, made it. That's we would have made it then for sure without so I, coffee I, shops and kombucha. <laughs> and, yeah. Not definitely an off-brand coffee. Better not be mainstream coffee. Obvious, obviously. And if you plan a church for millennials, you better be stringing Edison bulbs across the ceiling or Is else it's a, just, yeah. You can still feel like you're at the Or else brewery. it's not. Or else it's not organic enough. It's not when raw. You're at church. You're yeah. welcome, guys. It's too mainstream. We, these guys thought of everything. <laughs> okay, so I actually, for the very first time in my life, got pessimistic about that question um, about a month ago for one night. Uh, my wife and I watched the Friends reunion, loved it. And then the next night, we were in the car on our way to a Red Rocks hangout, and I was feeling down, and Sam said, she said, what's wrong? And I said, I actually, for the first time in my life, wish that I was born into a different era. Um, I said, I wish that we were raising kids and planting a church in the 90s. And I know I'm ignorant. I know there's good and bad to every decade. Let's not. You could have had frosted tips. Oh, frosted jeans. tips are coming back. I am seriously thinking about bleaching my hair. I, don't, I don't see know. why you wouldn't. I don't know either. <laughs> got nobody to impress anymore, so. Um, but I said, yeah, to, to have planted a church back in a decade where people trusted the church, <laughs> um, where people, for the most part, trusted the government, um, where everybody wasn't trying to desperately gain influence or be famous, where you weren't connected to the world, you didn't know about every horrible thing 30 minutes after it happened. I just found myself getting nostalgic about the good old days, right? Because the good old days are always somewhere behind you. And um, man, you read Acts chapter 17 though, and it's very clear that God has appointed the very time that you would exist on this planet. 
even down to your geographical barriers. Translation, you are supposed to be alive in 2021 in Austin, Texas right now. This is not a coincidence. So can we get excited about the the reality of the field and the generations that we are building this church for in the future? And I think a lot of times we interpret the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, but we actually view it backwards where we say, well, actually, Mm. the harvest is few. It's the workers that are plentiful. There's so many of us. The church is big. People just don't wanna buy what we're selling. They don't wanna talk to us. They don't want Jesus. They don't want anything to do with church. And so we view it that way, but that's not what Jesus said. And I think we see that right now in this very interesting collision of generations, that it's very easy to think nobody wants this. Nobody wants Jesus when actually people are desperately searching for it. So we have this strange kind of time to be pastors as millennials and be a church in this time where we had baby boomers and Gen X. Do you help me with the dates here? The uh, Gen X, if you were born between 1965 and 1980. Anybody? Okay. Gen Xers in the room. And by the way, uh, we say this all the time, um, being old is not an age, it's a spirit thing. Um, and you're drawn to this church because you have a very, very youthful spirit. I think it's the day you start blaming the younger generations for the world's problems is the day you start getting old. I don't think we have anybody old in our church right yeah. now because we champion and celebrate the younger generations. So those generations grew up in a time when, if you were an American, you'd say, probably you'd say I'm a Christian. That was just kind of the norm. Families went to church. There was this morality sort of based on Christianity, and I know we're painting with broad strokes talking about entire generations of people, but that was kind of the America at that time, the state of the church at that time. And what we see is there is a ton of religion rehab that's needed for those generations because a lot of it was legalism, a lot of it was religion, it wasn't Jesus. And so we have people with a very firm background of religion, maybe not Jesus, and so a lot of us as millennials maybe inherited a copy-paste version of that, maybe especially in the Bible Belt, and need some of that religion rehab. So we have one foot in that as this bridge generation, but then pulling forward into Gen Z, we are in this time where technology and everything has advanced more rapidly than ever in history. Yeah, and then so millennial generation, that's the bomb that hit the earth in 1981 and changed everything. And so that's 1981 to 1996, um, depending on who you ask. Any millennials in the room right now? Okay, I love it. And uh, we're called the bridge generation because we remember, we remember the day when faith was normal and the church on every corner was full. We remember, you remember Apple Pie America. We remember blockbusters on Friday night, you know, and, and Boy Meets World, and, and, uh, very, and you had a home phone, like you're comfortable in that. AOL, AOL dial-up. AOL dial-up. Wild advancement. But also, and, and the thing, the reason it's called a bridge generation, never before in history have things changed as rapidly as they have while we were growing up. And so essentially, we were the guinea pig generation, the giant experiment. What happens to a whole generation in the most formative years of their lives when they're given infinity in their front pocket and we connect them to the rest of the world? So one foot in the old, but then also very, very comfortable in the new world, the way that it is now. And now Gen Z, which is, I guess, the 96 forward, Mm -hmm. there's no memory of that. They, they don't, they're a blank slate generation when it comes to faith, which I think on one side can feel heartbreaking. That's like, there's no real, hey, this is who Jesus is that you grew up with. There's, and I know that's not true for every single Gen Zer, but there's no real basis of a church family. There's no real basis of faith or a common morality or anything like that. And while that on one side can look heartbreaking, there's also so much tremendous opportunity when it comes to a generation that a lot of us from the older generations than Gen Z that are healing and doing some religion rehab and meeting Jesus and seeing him work in our lives can say, let us equip you so you don't have to do religion rehab one day. You can start way ahead of where we all are coming from. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, by the way, as we transition really quick into talking about the future of the church and reaching the next generation, let me set it up with this paradigm, if you will, using the prodigal son. So a lot of you know our vision statement, making heaven more crowded by building a front porch in Austin to welcome home prodigals or those who are far from God. We get that from Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, this young man who grows up at home in his father's house, gets gets his inheritance early and runs away to a far away land 
and then squanders all of it, wastes all of it on lavish and selfish living until he hits rock bottom one night and comes to the end of himself while having dinner with literal pigs and he remembers home. That's key. Remembers home, so what does he do? He returns home. He remembers it so he runs back home. Okay, so in a lot of ways, this is a lot, for a lot of us, this is our story, millennials and younger, where you grew up in church, and maybe you've just, maybe you never left, maybe you never left, and that's an amazing testimony. For a lot of us, we, we ran from it, right? We ran to a, a faraway land, and you say, oh, one day when, when maybe sin is not as fun, I'll run back, or if I, I'm gonna try to find it on my own, and if I don't, I'm gonna run back. We have something that Tim Keller would call the Jesus haunt, where Jesus, in the best way possible, haunts us. We remember church. We remember being home. We remember faith being normal. So we have something to run back to and something to return to. And I guess my question is, do you realize that Generation Z is the first generation ever to be completely born in the faraway land? with no memory of home. So we've got millions and millions of amazing young people in an entire generation searching for something. All of us have this void that only God can fill and we spend our lives trying to find it. So we've got millions of people in one generation trying to find it with no Jesus haunt. And I think about that and go, well, that's why we do what we do. That's the future of the church that we're building. That is why we are sacrificing to continue to go and get them and build churches in the faraway land. If you think about it, the, the whole phrase, build it and they will come, is no longer true. It no longer applies. For Gen X and boomers and before that, that worked so well. If you build it, it's very easy, and, I, and I'm, I'm, speaking, um, I'm speaking from statistics, okay? It's very easy to fill a room with them, very difficult to get to their hearts, but very easy to fill a room. Now, man, you can build the coolest building, you can put on the best events, it doesn't mean anybody's coming, which means the job of the church as pastors, as leaders, and I'm looking at you, I see leaders in this room, our role switches from priests that people come to to missionaries who go and get. Because the unreached, like think about it, Generation Z is basically an unreached people group. No memory of home, you guys, waiting for the church to go think different and get them. When we, we did youth ministry with a buddy of ours in Southern California, and his whole premise of ministry with all these kids, Gen Zers, was, hey, don't expect them to come to youth group. Don't expect them to show up at the church because they, they're not gonna. They're probably not being told at home, we're a family that goes to church. They don't wanna be here. So if they're surfing, go surf with them. If they're skating, go skate with them, which we were like, Fine. Sweet, yeah. easy. <laughs> coolest, coolest job description ever. <laughs> But the idea was go, go where they are, mm -hmm. go out. And I think that when we talk about uh, the future of the church, maybe you hear like, oh, they're gonna talk about that this weekend. I've been at conferences where, hey, this afternoon, this pastor's gonna tell us about the future of the church. And I think method, where I'm like, okay, so what are we gonna do with live stream? How much emphasis do we put on online versus in the room? And, and what is what gonna happen to multi-site? What are, what are our strategies? How's growth track gonna be revived? All these kinds of things. What's the new way to do groups? But that stuff's important, and we talk about that stuff, and we, you know, we're trying to reach people in a digital age, and we're gonna continue to adjust and be present in all these ways that we can, but I think that's a very small part of what actually matters when it comes to the future of the church and how we're gonna reach these future generations. I think it's much less just the method, it's much more about how we are presenting the message to them and how we are living our lives and the values that they're seeing from a body of believers that look very different than what they're seeing all around in culture, in the places they're looking. I think we, the number one priority to Gen Z when we were listening uh, about that, the number one thing that's most important to them is financial security. That's the number one answer. And that's a lot of kids who grew up, maybe whose parents lost everything, you know, in 08, with economic fallout post 9-11, a time when, to them, for some reason, the most important thing is having financial Security. Yeah, because they grew up in uh, maybe a life or a world where everything just seemed unstable, and so they thought, not me, not me. 
Very different uh, from the millennial generation. Our word, you guys, is, uh, is purpose and calling and, and destiny. And millennials will couch hop until we're 47 if it means holding out for the job that feels like our calling, right? Yeah, it is, it's so true. And there's, you know, there's redemptive qualities to that. There's good qualities to that. Like every generation, there's also there's bad qualities to that. I'm not saying purpose is not a word for Gen Z, not at all. I'm just saying their main thing is financial stability, absolutely. And so for the church, I think it sounds really challenging. It can be easy to think like, man, how do we navigate a generation like this without that memory of home? But it's gonna be so easy in one way for them to see reality of what they're looking for because what we know is a religion of finance is going to fail them. A pursuit and trying to find your fulfillment in financial security and having money will let you down. As we've seen with other religions, so to speak, religion of just religion has failed people and led them uh, to not feel fulfilled because they didn't meet Jesus. Religion of politics, that is probably the number one religion, so to speak, in this country right now. How's that working for everybody who puts all of their energy and all of their thought into this battle of the religion of politics, it's failing. It's dividing us further, and so we have this generation who's looking for fulfillment. And, and I don't think it's gonna be just the method and the way that we reach them, but it's who we are as people and the values that we carry that are so counter, and the values at this church. We say everybody needs a, anybody? A hug, a hug at this church. Authenticity, humility, unity, and generosity. Those are four values. The guys who founded this church in 2005, I think, didn't even, couldn't have known how prophetic, really, those values were for the coming generations that craved those things and are not finding them anywhere. You're talking about a social media world where authenticity, that's almost impossible to find. A real ability to be yourself and have a real conversation with somebody else. That's why we strive to be a church of authenticity, where we're trying to dispute you know, the myth that pastors wear capes. Easy, and say, hey, we're, easy yeah, which to do. We don't, it's not hard, especially with Ryan. No. Uh, and his handwriting and as many lies that he's told about ending series and all those things. But we, <laughs> um, we wanna be authentic, whether it's from a stage on a Sunday, whether that's in a group during the week to say, hey, we can just have real interactions and be real people and you're not disqualified because you're different or because you have questions, but we can actually just be authentic. You don't even have to agree with everything the pastors say. Like you're allowed to be in process at yeah. this church, it's a, it's a place where, like if anywhere, the church should be that place where you can ask all your tough questions, authenticity. And to have humility to say, yeah. I don't know a lot of the time. And to sit in tough conversations and sit in tension and be able to say, I'm not positive about that. Mm -hmm. I'm not just gonna put the stamp of the church on something and tell you that I know exactly how the, this mysterious God who created everything views everything. No, we can be humble and, and lower ourselves to elevate the people around us and be bound by things like love and compassion and kindness and have the humility to sit with people wherever they are at to go to their faraway land and befriend them there. Unity is probably the thing that I think is most difficult to find right now in, in our nation, in our culture, and people crave it. And to be a church that is known for our unity to be the church that's known not for how we divide and separate. And I know there's a lot of church history and baggage for people in this room because of division in the church, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And, and we can have something to do with that, but it takes us saying we are the church, which we say a lot, but I, I use this metaphor. I think we view the church like I do my sports teams, especially the Colorado Rockies, my beloved baseball team, where, hey, in a season of success, which is like Haley's Comet for us, I'm like, man, we're awesome. We are killing it this year. But then, on a down season, like this year, we traded away our best franchise player we've ever had, gave money to go with him, and I'm just like, and we're losing and losing and losing. I'm like, they are the worst. They've let me down, right? That's how we approach the church. Oh, this beautiful story of some Christians doing something good, well, that's who we are but then we start to hear about some of the flaws that we have because we're human beings trying imperfectly to pursue a perfect God and we go, well, that's them. Prove me right, church. That's what the church does. We'll blast the church on social media. Church, are you gonna do something about this? And as pastors, a lot of times we're looking at, they're like, are you the church? Are you gonna do something about that? Because this is us, all of us together, and if we can be unified in that way and people see 
a unity that's not present in a divided culture, and they're gonna be drawn to that because they're not finding that. Yeah, yeah, but let me just say this. I think a lot of us would say, oh, yeah, I wanna be part of building that. I want to be part of the solution, but let me just say, okay, what if I told you the moment you start being part of the solution means you're gonna get blamed for all the problems, past and present. Do you still want that? I think deep in your spirit, in your soul, the, the, the answer is a resounding yes, because I know I'm called to build this thing. I know I'm called to leave it better than I found it for my kids. I'm a, I'm a builder. I'm a maker of the future. Did we, did we share the football metaphor? Just going into sports metaphor. You did not. Go. Okay. We used to say this a lot in college, and this always made sense to me, that the church a lot of times looks like, um, let's use basketball. I was watching a basketball game last night. Let's imagine that there's a timeout, and the players are huddled around the coach, and the coach draws up a play, and then the whistle blows and they all go sit on the bench. Nobody walks out on the floor and does anything. And then they huddle back up together and they call a play and they go sit on the bench. And a lot of times as the church, we huddle up on Sunday, we call the play, we remember our foundation, we remember what we're here to do, but then what's happening? And how weird does that look? How weird would that look to the world to say, well, they never actually run the play. And it was convicting for us because we thought, man, how weird would that have looked if the disciples had done that? when that angel tapped them on the shoulder, if they had just been like, okay, and they just went and sat and hung out in the same place for the rest of their lives, but instead they just went out and got everybody with this message of Jesus. And so as makers of the future, we gotta huddle in here. This is so important, because this is where we come back together and remember who we are and, and hear truth and all these things, but you've gotta huddle every single day. You've gotta have your huddle to remember why you're here and what your purpose is and get that perspective. And then Jesus told you what to go do to go love people and to welcome them into his kingdom and share this good news. And now it's gonna be with a lot of people who have no context for what you're talking about. And you get the opportunity through your story and whatever rehab God has done or whatever amazing way Jesus drew you to himself, you get to share that with somebody else. That's really good. So now I get to throw out a question that has been haunting me all week. So now I'm like, oh, now we can all be haunted together, okay? So this comes from a Switchfoot song, of course it does. And E is gonna sing Dare You to Move Acapella out of this conversation when, when this is over, so. Happy to do it. Yeah. Um, there's a song called The World You Want. And to me, I think, okay, makers of the future world that we want. And the line John Foreman sings is, is this the world you want? Because you're making it every day you're alive. So the world that uh, we have tomorrow is the world that we made today. And so the question is, if everybody lived like me, if everybody served like me, if everybody forgave like me, if everybody gave like me, if everybody loved and talked like me, would the world be better? Or if everybody did that the way I did it, would the world not be? Would our church be more effective if everybody lived like you in our church? And everybody, if I was just copied and pasted into every, every single person, would the world be better or not? Is this the world you want? We are making the world of tomorrow, we're making that today. And so. And we have answers to questions that a lot of, especially Gen Z is asking yes. in a person. Okay, so, yeah, so we'll finish right here. Here's three questions that we believe Gen Z, the next generation, is asking, and if we can answer those, then maybe this, just, this is just a practical way that we can be a church that is effective for the future. And those three questions are simply this. What is truth? Where do I belong? And does my life really matter? What is truth, where do I belong, does my life really matter? If we can answer those questions, so really quick, let's take them one at a time. What is truth? I think everybody's asking that in a day and age where truth has become relative. I'll explain it this way, and I think I got this from something Tim Keller wrote, probably. Uh, he's brilliant, but he talks about truth. It used to be, um, not that truth changes, just our perception and what we call it. It used to be that truth was something bigger than you outside of you. So whether that was God or dying for your country or honor, this is truth and like it or not, this is real. And now you can choose whether or not to conform to that. But now it's become way more relative. 
way more individual where it's taught truth is inside of you and you make everybody else conform to that. Which sounds, it, it, does, it sounds really good and really appealing. I think what we're seeing the beginnings of is a lot of secularism failing because it lacks the presence of this personal, this personal being beyond it all where truth is actually a North Star that is unchanging, that cares about you finding your way, I think people are really, really hungry for that right now. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate, standing in front of Jesus, asked the question, what is truth? So you can be standing in front of the personified truth and still completely miss it. And so what we need to become experts in through love and through grace is showing Generation Z how this book, how truth answers the deepest questions that they are asking and actually has answers for the most practical parts of your life. Jesus was okay to be useful before he became beautiful. Jesus said, I will feed you and I will heal you before you even figure out who I am. And I think if we keep proclaiming who Jesus is and the greatness of our God, absolutely. But as we show the next generation that the truth they're looking for, like a North Star that cares about them, is right here, that slowly but surely they will start to fall in love with it. And the beauty of that generation is if they fall in love with something, they'll sell out to it very, very fast. It just might take more than a hand raise. That used to work. It's not going to for this next generation. We will see fruit as we do this. And that's why for us, like we say experience God all the time at this church. That's why for us as pastors, it's not about getting somebody to just raise their hand and sleep better at night, but instead it's to introduce somebody to the person in relationship of Jesus because in a world of relative truth all around you, when you experience your maker, when you experience the goodness of your God, when you experience how he feels about you, that is a truth that cannot be taken from you. It cannot be shaken by the circumstance or the moment, and that's why this is so important. That's why we worship together. That's why we work on sermons to try to bring truth and the person of Jesus to life for people because when you experience him, that cannot be shaken, and that's why we will continue to do that and invite people into that, but then to take that from here as you're experiencing that and go to somebody else and let them experience it through you. What is truth? Where do I belong? That's why we will unapologetically have the widest doors we can possibly have at this church. Not just physical double doors, although that's helpful. Um, unapologetically, may our doors swing as wide as possible so that as many people as possible can experience God and find a place where they belong in, a, in, a, in an era where we are the most connected generations ever, yet the loneliness, the loneliest generations ever at the exact same time. People are so desperate for real friends and real community, finding family at this church. That's what we're all, like this is a foundational thing for us that when you walk in here, you would know I belong here, even if you don't believe what we believe. Even if you don't behave the way we behave, you belong before you believe or behave. It is the first step. I belong at this church. I mean, it's, it's very similar to the woman caught in adultery. In, uh, I think it's John chapter eight, when Jesus says something, but he says it in a specific order. I don't condemn you. The very first thing he says, translation, you belong with me. Oh, you're in the club because I'm the CEO. Oh, you got a home here. And then he challenged her. And I think, I think these generations want to be challenged. I think people are afraid that millennials don't wanna be challenged because it'll hurt our feelings. But what I've seen is for millennials and Gen Z, if you know that you belong, if you know that you're accepted and that you're loved first, then you welcome, oh man, call me out, challenge me, push me. I want to get better, but where do I belong? I belong in the house of God. Which is why we're so passionate about saying, hey, we're advocates for the Imago Day. We are for people because so many people's background of church or what maybe they will experience or perceive about church is that drawing a circle and people are in and people are out, but instead the mentality of saying, no, you just belong here because you're a child of God. We can disagree on stuff, our lives might look different, but you're a child of God, so get in here. And we're talking about a generation that has a metric of relationship through the numbers of followers on social media, that has relationships that are so superficial through things like DMs. 
And instead, what I love seeing in a place like this is hearing stories of groups or seeing a night at volleyball or watching people at hangouts and people like their eyes opening. These are real people around me that care about me, that love me, that embody authenticity and, and humility and unity and want to just love me and they don't even know me, but they love me. And why is that? Oh, because we're siblings, because we have the same dad and he made us in his image and, and we will continue to push our church always and stretch our church to blow up those barriers and boundaries and always help people find it. Guess where you belong? In your father's house and with your family. That's where you belong. What is truth? Where do I belong? Does my life really matter? So you've already heard, we've got a generation that is in pursuit of financial stability. And there's so much of that that is redemptive and amazing. But all of us know to some extent, hey, that is going to fall short and leave you still empty with this God-shaped void that you are trying to fill. It will fall short eventually, but when it does, hey, we are here to help you see the eternal significance to your life, that you're not an accident, you were made on purpose and for a purpose, but rather than stopping what you're doing to come do what we're doing, let us keep doing what you're doing and let us help you bring eternal significance to it. Let us help you see why it's part of a bigger story than just your pursuit of happiness. Let us help you, like we wanna invite you into something to see that absolutely your life matters. It really does for something beyond it and bigger than it and that's why we do grow. Yeah, let me get really practical just for a second because we talk about this thing grow every single week at this church. And the whole idea is not to give you that begrudging guilt trip, you know, don't be a consumer, contribute, do something for the church. But instead to say, hey, God wired you and made you uniquely to zoom you out to that 40,000 foot view of your life and say, you're not just here insignificantly to just kind of make some money and survive for a little period of history but instead you have a purpose deep inside of you that God wants to use and to invite you into building his kingdom with him. And he has equipped you uniquely. We describe grow, it's like an airport that you show up in and God's saying, hey, where do you wanna go? Because I got a suitcase for you and it's filled with some specific things that I gave only to you. So where do you wanna go? Where do you wanna go plug that in? And, and your destiny is not just standing at a door greeting somebody or making coffee to welcome people into a home. Well, that's a huge part of it, but hopefully illuminating to you as you go out into your week, there is this purpose that's unique to me and this is how I can reach people. And we wanna plug people into that purpose in our church and make it very practical and tangible for you. So that's why you will never stop hearing us say, go to grow, go to grow, because uh, not so you do a program for our church, but so that you unlock the purpose that God wired into you and you go live that, not for the sake of Red Rocks Austin, but to be a maker of the future. We guys give it up for my college buddy, Ethan Matat. Let's go. Will you guys also stand up? Because we're about to uh, finish with some worship and then we'll get out of here and go have some fun and pray it doesn't rain because fire and water don't mix, if you know what I mean. Um, Apollo 13 was called the successful failure because they never made it to the moon, but they got all three astronauts back to Earth safely, despite the fact that half of their spaceship exploded on day three of a seven-day journey. There's a scene towards the end of the movie. If you haven't seen Apollo 13, that's your homework for this week. One of my favorite movies. I get goosebumps every time I, I think about this part, but there are hundreds of men and women in Houston working tirelessly to bring these three men home. And the climax of the whole thing is when the command module is about to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. And this is when they find out, is this gonna work or is this not? And there's a scene in Houston where there are two men having a conversation about all the problems and everything that could possibly go wrong. Oh, the heat shield could be cracked. Oh, the parachutes are blocks of ice. They haven't been heated in space for three days. Oh, the, the re-entry trajectory is off and there's a typhoon where the re-entry point is. And then one of the men says, and I quote, this will be the worst disaster NASA has ever experienced. What they don't know is right behind them is their boss the flight director, a man by the name of Gene Kranz, who overhears them and very calmly then says, with all due respect, gentlemen, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. And it was. 
See, I think it's really tempting just to look at our present reality, look at our cities, look at generations, look at our field, and just see all the problems. Oh, look at Gen Z. Look at the millennials. Look at the, the rise of the nuns and people who want no religious affiliation whatsoever. Look at the second wave of angry atheism. Look at the decline of morality, the loss of social skills, the loneliness epidemic and anxiety, depression and suicide and the very fact that faith and Christianity is at a decline in our nation right now. This could be the worst disaster the church has ever experienced. And can I just say, with all due respect, I believe this is going to be the church in America's finest hour. I really believe that with all my heart. I'm talking about the decade coming up, that I love our generations. I champion and celebrate them and wanna pour into them and build them. I love our field that God has given us. I don't see the problems. I see people worth sacrificing for and potential to harness and dig out of people. I love our cultural moment. One of my pet peeves is when well-meaning Christians will say to me, oh, I fear for the world that your kids are gonna have to grow up in. And while I get it, I really do get it. There's also part of me that wants to respond and say, with all due respect, I believe my kids are gonna grow up in the church during her finest hour because there is something about the church being uncomfortable that makes it come alive. Almost as if comfort and things going well is the worst thing that could ever happen for Christians. But man, when things get uncomfortable, when we get pushed to the margins, that's when Christians wake up. That's when not only do we continue to huddle, but we actually go out onto the field and we start running plays. And that's when the world sitting in the stands starts to take notice and go, there is something different about this group of people. And it's not even values or morals. It must be a person, something that transcends beyond these people, a loving and deeply personal God out there. And the world will notice, you guys. The world will notice we are the makers of the future. You have royalty in your veins. You are separate and different from the rest of all creation because you can see tomorrow even though tomorrow hasn't happened. You can envision a world that has not yet been realized. Not only can you see what is, but you see what could be. And you and me can go and make it. I think God's looking down wondering what the church in 2021 is going to do next for their children's children. So Jesus, we love you so much. My goodness, I thank you for our field. Help us to see the potential. Help us to see the people. Help us to sacrifice, help us to live with authenticity and humility and unity and generosity. Help us to be flexible and to pivot whatever it is that we have to do. Whatever you're doing next, Jesus, we are, we are running to where the future is. God, you're doing a new thing, coming like a rising sun and we are looking east right now. So God, would you have your way and continue to use us as your makers of the future, thank you for letting us play. Thank you for letting us create. Thank you for saying, I've made you and I've placed you into something. And the beauty of it means you matter and you can make as I have made you. We choose to live, not just saved, but called. In Jesus' name, amen.